thank you so much for being here today, and happy Mother's Day um, to, <clears throat> to all of our moms. We love you. We appreciate you. Um, if you're in our overflow room, I want to say welcome as well as those of you who are watching us on Facebook Live. Today, we are looking at Proverbs 31. If you've got a Bible with you, and you want to turn to Proverbs 31, just open almost to the middle of your Bible. Go to the very last chapter in Proverbs um, that is Proverbs 31. You can see that I've titled today's message, The Good Wife. Some of you may remember that television series that aired a number of years ago. Uh, the main character in that uh, series was married to the Attorney General of the state of Illinois. Uh, he was involved in a uh, scandal, and because he was such a scoundrel himself, she was called The Good Wife, although later in the series you find out that her moral, moral character was lacking as well. Um, this morning, we are actually going to look at the good wife as portrayed in Proverbs 31. Before we begin, there are a few things you need to know about Proverbs 31. The first is that it was written by King Lemuel. Proverbs 31 begins this way The sayings of King Lemuel, an, utter, an inspired utterance, his mother taught him. So if you've been around church for a while, you know that Proverbs was written by King Solomon. King Solomon was the third king over Israel. He lived about a thousand years before Christ. He was the son of King David. And he was considered to be the wisest man who has ever walked on earth aside from Jesus Christ. And so at a certain point in his life, Solomon sat down and he wrote out all these nuggets of wisdom that God had given to him on all these various areas of life. From work to relationships to money to all these things, he wrote out the wisdom that God had given to him to pass down to his son so that when dear old dad was gone, his son would have a reference book of the wisdom of Solomon. Chapters 1 through 30 were written by Solomon, and then we get to chapter 31, and we read that it was written by King Lemuel, the sayings of King Lemuel. Who in the world is King Lemuel? There's no other reference in the Bible to King Lemuel. There's no other historical documents that we can find referencing King Lemuel. Who in the world was this guy who closes out the book of Proverbs? The best guess, and in my opinion, the only one that makes sense, is that King Lemuel and King Solomon were the same guy. And that Lemuel was a pet name that King Solomon's mother, a lady named Bathsheba, had given to Solomon when he was younger. Meaning, when he was in public, everyone called him Solomon, but at home, his mama called him Lem. This was the pet name that she gave to him. And in honor of his mother, he closes out the book with the advice that she gave to him and references these as being the sayings of King Lemuel because that was the pet name that she gave him. So the first thing is that it was written by King Lemuel. Proverbs 31 also describes an ideal. If you've been in church before and you've heard this passage preached and you're a wife or a mother and you read these words, you're already feeling overwhelmed like you're not doing enough keeping the kids healthy, keeping the household running, and then you read these words about the perfect wife and mother, and you think, great, now the bar is set even higher. 
you know, to this unattainable place and you just feel overwhelmed with guilt. Here's what you need to understand. This paints the picture of an ideal and it's not really directed at you, mom, at you, wife. Proverbs 31 was designed not for women, but it was designed as a guide for single guys. When you read verses 10 through 31, in the original Hebrew, here's what you have to know. They were alliterated with the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. So 22 verses, each one beginning with a succeeding letter of the Hebrew alphabet, making that passage easy to memorize. On Friday nights, on the Jewish Sabbath, when Jewish families would gather together, Proverbs 31, 10 through 31, was recited by the husband and the children to mom as a way to praise mom, but more importantly, as a way to instill in the sons gathered around the table the kind of woman they should look for when they were pursuing a wife. The qualities that are listed in this passage were there to tell boys, this is what you need to look for. Here is why it was done that way. Because the mother of King Solomon and Every mom who has lived in the 3,000 years since these words were written, they all understand this, that guys will fall for a girl who is outwardly beautiful, but not necessarily the kind of girl that he needs to marry. And so the qualities listed in in this passage was there to teach young guys who to pursue when they were looking to get married. Years ago, when I was serving at another church, there was a guy in the church who was in his 40s, had never been married. He was sort of a lifelong bachelor. And from what I heard with people that knew him well, his problem was is that he was just way too picky. He was always looking for Mrs. Wright, but he had a set of criteria that were just impossible. I mean, no matter who it was, a date, a potential date, He would always find something that was wrong with the girl based on some physical appearance, and he would write her off and say, no, I'm not interested. She was too tall. She was too short. Her hair was too straight. It was too curly. Her voice was too high. Her voice was too low. She walked funny. She ate her peas one at a time instead of scooping them. I mean, something that was always some deal that made it where he just said, no, I can't date her. I'm not interested Even though I'm ready to get married, no, she's not it. And so one day I heard this older lady in the church walk up to him, and she said, you know what your problem is? Your problem is you're just too picky. You want a woman who looks like Christy Brinkley but cooks like Betty Crocker. (laughs) Now, if you're over about 35, you laughed. If you're under 35, you're like, I don't get it. That doesn't make sense. 
Well, you probably know who Betty Crocker is because she's not a real person. She's a company. She makes cake mixes and brownie mixes and muffin mixes. You go in the store, you see Betty Crocker. And so presumably, if you married a woman who cooks like Betty Crocker, she would be a great wife because she's able to make all these wonderful meals. But again, if you're under about 35, you're like, Christy, who, who are you talking about? Back in the 1980s and 1990s, she was considered to be one of the most beautiful women in all of America. She was a supermodel who appeared on magazine covers and in commercials. She was even in a movie with Chevy Chase called Vacation. She was this beautiful, beautiful girl. I understand that she was actually in the Sports Illustrated Swimsuit Edition, but personally, I would not know that fact. <laughs> you can verify that with somebody else, but not me. So this beautiful, beautiful girl. Now, quite ironically, she was married to this guy, Billy Joel. So let me give a little bit of advice to you single guys. If you're not that physically attractive, forget football, forget baseball, forget being a star athlete. Learn to play the guitar, learn to play the piano, write a couple hit songs, and you too can marry a supermodel because evidently that's all it takes, even if you're not an unattractive guy. So this girl... This lady walks up to this guy and says, I'm going to tell you what your problem is. You're way too picky. You want a girl who looks like Christy Brinkley, but cooks like Betty Crocker. And he shakes his head and says, no, that's not true at all. She doesn't have to cook like Betty Crocker. Implied in that is, as long as she is physically beautiful, that's all I care about. That's all I'm after. He admitted to swimming in the shallow end of the pool, and physical looks were all that were important to him. Proverbs 31 was written specifically to teach guys, this is what you need to look for, this inner beauty, not just physical appearances. In fact, the way the passage is structured, the very central sentence in this poem, the very central verse, the theme of the whole passage is found in verse 23. Here's how it reads. Her husband is respected at the city gate where he takes his seat among the elders in the land. So this passage is all about the traits of the good wife, of the perfect woman, and yet the central theme is not about the woman. But it's about the man. It focuses on the husband who is respected at the city gate, the place where public business took place. It is about the man and the kind of life that he has. So basically, the mother says these things to her son to say this. If you want to be respected, if you want success in life, then this is the kind of woman you need to pursue. In fact, if we were bringing it to today, we would say something like this. Look beyond middle school. Guy, look beyond high school. Uh, fellow, young man, look beyond college. Look beyond Friday night. Look beyond the prom. Look beyond that next date. Look beyond that. Picture your life a decade from now or a couple of decades from now. What do you want it to look like? How, how do you picture that? 
Well, if that is important to you, then you need to understand the kind of woman you need to pursue when you're looking for a wife. John MacArthur says it this way. He says, the point is, he is known as her husband, and his reputation is known far and wide. He is known by everybody. What happened was, inside the gates of ancient cities, there would be a sort of platform area or a patio area where the elders of the city would gather every day and they would adjudicate the matters that came up in the city, disputes. And it was like a sort of open court where hearings were made with regard to the issues of the time and where business was carried out. And the elders of the city, the mature men of the city, sat in this place and rendered judgment. The point being that this man had a great reputation among the leaders of the city. It is a reputation basically built by his wife. She is so faithful to the duties of her love to him, he is free to be every bit the man he can be. And so he develops a tremendous reputation. That reputation is undergirded by her because she's doing everything to make him everything he ought to be. Now, as we go through this passage, we will see this does not mean that she is a doormat, only serving him. In fact, it is, it is right the opposite. Because of her strength and her character, his life and the life of their entire family is made better. So, what are the specific qualities of the good wife? There are five. So, first of all, the good wife is of great worth. Look at verse 10. It says, a wife of noble character, who can find? She is worth far more than rubies. Her husband has full confidence in her and lacks nothing of value. She brings him good, not harm, all the days of her life. So Solomon here began with the words that his mother would tell him. That finding a wife of noble character is like finding this great treasure. A treasure that is like rubies, or some translations say pearls, these incredibly valuable jewels of the day. Essentially, she is saying, look, finding this kind of wife is of greater value than having lots and lots of money. This pursuit is a worthy, worthy pursuit. Now, notice what she doesn't say. She doesn't say, son, find a girl who is a knockout. And that, that's like finding a great treasure. Find a girl who is a 10. That is a worthy pursuit. Find a girl who stops traffic with her drop-dead good looks. And that's like finding rubies and pearls and other precious jewels. Instead, here she says, look beyond physical beauty. Look to the inner beauty. Look to a noble character. That is the pursuit. That is the worthwhile gold. That is the treasure. That is rubies and diamonds or some other precious jewel. Essentially, Solomon's mom says that while physical beauty is good, inner beauty is of far greater value. Why? Because the wife of noble character will bring to her husband good not harm all the days of her life. Put a finger right there for just a moment in Proverbs 31, and I want you to turn back to Proverbs 7. 
Proverbs 31 ends the book of Proverbs. The woman who is pictured here is painted in contrast to another woman who shows up in several places throughout this book. She is sometimes called the seductress. She is sometimes called the adulteress. She is mentioned in a number of places, but especially Proverbs 7. Proverbs 7 paints this picture of the seductive woman and what happens to the young man who finds that she has gotten his claws into her. Look at chapter 7, verses 21 through 23. With persuasive words, this is the seductive woman, she led him astray. She seduced him with her smooth talk. All at once he followed her like an ox going to the slaughter, like a deer stepping into a noose, till an arrow pierces his liver like a bird darting into a snare, little knowing that it will cost him his life. This is a woman who obviously brings harm, not good, to her boyfriends, to her husband, to her husbands. She cannot be trusted. There is no way that he can have full confidence in her, even though she is beautiful, even though she is seductive, even though she has this incredible outward beauty. She will ultimately bring him harm, not good, all the days of his life. The wife of noble character, however, is different. She intentionally works for the good of her husband. She knows that her life and the life of her family will be better when she works in a way to make her husband the best person that he can be. A female author on this passage wrote this. She doesn't just do good, uh, do him good on occasion, but every day, implying even and especially when she may feel she has reason to be angry or upset with him. It is important to her that her husband trusts her. She wants him to be able to confide in her and know she will keep his counsel. She wants to guard his honor and not speak unfavorably of him before others. Clearly, he can depend on her to keep commitments she makes to him. She consistently manages the home in a way that he feels secure in trusting it to her. So again, the good wife, the mom of Solomon, wants him to know is of great worth, a great treasure. Secondly, the good wife is a go-getter worker. Um, I'm not the best at alliterations. I had a hard time finding a word for energetic or industrious that starts with a G. This is what you get. She's a go-getter worker. Look at verse 13. She selects wool and flax and works with eager hands. She is like the merchant ships bringing her food from afar. She gets up while it is still night. She provides food for her family and portions for her female servants. She considers a field and buys it. Out of her earnings, she plants a vineyard. She sets about her work vigorously. Her arms are strong for her task. Now, here is what is interesting about this section. The mother of Solomon would have known that Solomon would have pursued a woman who came from royalty. She would have been part of the ruling class, the noble class, the royal class. And therefore, 
she would have been someone who did not have to work. She came from a family where she could have female servants, where she had means to consider a field and buy it. Most people in that day, they lived this kind of hand-to-mouth existence, but those who were in the ruling class, they didn't have to do that. And they had the option of not working. And so very easily, someone who was part of this noble class could have had a sort of Marie Antoinette kind of existence, laying around all day, just lying on sofas, eating the finest foods around, taking it easy, being completely detached from the common man and their needs. And here Solomon's mother says to Solomon, when you meet that kind of girl, just keep on walking. Move past her. You want to you want to pursue the kind of woman who is not scared of work. Someone who is willing to work hard. Again, take your finger and put it on Proverbs 31 and turn forward just two books to the Song of Solomon. Song of Solomon was also written by Solomon and it tells the story of Solomon's first love. His dating relationship, his engagement, his marriage, his honeymoon. Now, if you've been around church for a while, you know that Solomon later in life had a bunch of wives. Um, His heart drifted away from the Lord. He quit trusting in God. And so he began to marry all these foreign women as a way to make political alliances. But he began in the right way. He began with a heart for the Lord. And Song of Solomon tells the story of that first love. It is a beautiful, beautiful book that is a, an incredible picture of the romantic love that God has gifted to us, the relationship between a husband and wife. And in chapter 1 of Song of Solomon, what you read is the story of Solomon and this girl he is pursuing who is part of a ruling class This girl that he is pursuing, we would call it dating, courting. I'm not sure what ancient term they would use. But this was was before the engagement. This was before the marriage. This is where they're getting to know each other. And she comes to Solomon and she expresses the fact that she is feeling insecure about her physical appearance. And here is why. Song of Solomon, chapter 1. Do not stare at me because I am dark, because I am darkened by the sun. My mother's sons were angry with me and made me take care of the vineyards. My own vineyard I had to neglect. Notice what she says here. She had been darkened by the sun. Now, in our day, a nice tan, we consider that to be beautiful. That that adds to outward beauty. In that day, it did not. Because a tan meant that someone was working outside and that was reserved for the peasant class, not the the ruling class, not those who were part of nobility. And notice here she says, look, I know that I'm dark. I know that I've been darkened by the sun and I'm feeling insecure over that. Now, why she had to work in the fields where, you know, why her brothers made her do that? We don't know. My guess is once she married the king, they regretted making her work in the vineyards. But here's a girl who did not refuse to work. In fact, she says, look, 
I had to take care of the vineyards of my brothers. I neglected my own vineyards. She wasn't scared of working hard. And so she says, hey, look, you know, don't stare at me. I've been out in the sun. I've been working. I'm feeling insecure over the way I look. Notice how Solomon responds. How beautiful you are, my darling. Oh, how beautiful. In other words, you may think that that physically is unattractive, but I can see that you're a hard worker. And to me, that is beautiful. You're not scared to work hard. Here he is saying to her, your inner beauty and your willingness to work is attractive to me. So the good wife is a go-getter. Thirdly, the good wife offers generous welfare. Look at verse 18. She sees that her trading is profitable, and her lamp does not go out at night. In her hand she holds the distaff and grasps the spindle with her fingers. She opens her arms to the poor and extends her hands to the needy. Here this, these verses speak to how her go-getter attitude was really part of her generosity. That she was willing to work hard not just to provide for her family, not just to get financial gain, not just to elevate the financial position of her family, but as well to provide for the community. It says that she holds the distaff and grasps the spindle with her fingers. Uh, those were tools that were used to make clothes. So she would take the wool and she would make clothes for her family, but then others in the community as well who, who did not have clothing. She had a generous heart and she would provide for the community as well as her own family. So the good wife offers generous welfare. Number four, the good wife speaks gracious words. Go to verse 25. She is clothed with strength and dignity. She can laugh at the days to come. She speaks with wisdom, and faithful instruction is on her tongue. There are two key things here. One, she is not a complainer. She is able to laugh at the days to come. She is not a pessimist. She is not a negative Nancy. She is someone who has a positive view of life. She does not drag her husband down or others down with everything being negative all the time. She smiles and she laughs at the days to come. Secondly, though, she is a woman of wisdom. She is someone who gives faithful instruction to her children whom she is raising, but also to her husband. And her husband understands that God has given her wisdom and God has given her wisdom in certain areas of life where he has not been gifted in wisdom. And he is wise to listen to her when she instructs him, when she shares her wisdom with him. Uh, he understands very much so in this passage that God created men and women with different gifts. And even in the area of wisdom and understanding, they have been given different gifts. This was something I learned very early in my marriage. Um, I learned quickly that my wife has a lot more wisdom in the area of human relationships than I have. She is able to understand a situation, how someone is feeling. Um, she is able to understand motivations. Um, she is able to understand 
the truth behind the words that are spoken. She can look behind the facade. Um, like a typical guy, if someone says something to me, I take them at face value, including my wife. If she says, I'm not angry, I assume she's not angry. I learned that's not always the case. So years ago, we were serving in uh, Rome, Italy. We were working with college students there, and we worked at a particular university. And we went to the foreign languages, uh, languages department, and we mainly worked in that large department with college students um, who were looking to learn English. The reason is it, it gave us an open door to engage them in spiritual conversations. Um, they wanted to learn English. They wanted to work for American companies or British companies. And so it was very easy to get them to come to classes we would have or um, conversational meetings where they could ask us questions, where they could improve their English. In this particular department, um, in the spring of one year, they decided to put on a play. It was a play about Shakespeare and his characters coming back to life to haunt him. Somehow, I'm not exactly sure how, I got recruited to be in this play. I told the people, I don't go to this school. You know, I'm not enrolled here. Why do you want me to be in this play? And they said, we just want you to be in the play. We've got a part in the play that we think would be perfect for you. Would you be in our school play? We're going to perform it in a few weeks. Would you be in the play? Now, somehow, when that conversation was happening, Katie somehow backed up and got completely out of the conversation and managed to wiggle out of being in the play. I did not. I was in the play, and I... I got the role of, of, of King Titus, uh, I'm sorry, General Titus, the Roman general. It was one of Shakespeare's early tragedies. Um, I'll tell you one of the funny things is in Italian, Titus is Tito. The name Titus is Tito. So at play practice, they would say, where's Tito, where's Tito? And I'd look around for one of the Jackson 5 to show up, but that was me. I was, I was General Tito. You think I'm making this up, by the way. Here's a picture of me in the play. This is about 15 years ago. For some reason, I can't remember why, my character was upset with Shakespeare and he was going to attack him with a dagger. I don't remember why I was upset with Shakespeare. I do remember why I was upset with Katie for getting out of the play while I had to be in it. So the weeks leading up to the play, we had play rehearsal and she wouldn't go. She would stay at home. She was not in the play. I had to go to play rehearsal. Well, after a couple of rehearsals, there was a girl who was part of the university there, a college student, who began to talk to me a pretty good bit. And so I went home one day, and Katie said, how was play practice? It was great. You know, it was fine. Everything went well. By the way, there's this girl who is enrolled there at the school, and she's in the play, and here's the part that she's playing. And she has um, talked to me a lot, and I think that's great. I think it's really an open door for us to be able to to share the gospel with her at some point. I think she wants to come to our classes, be part of our group, because she seems really interested in our group and, you know, maybe in the gospel. She looked at me, yeah, right. <laughs> she said, I've not even been there. She said, I can tell you, she's not interested in the gospel. She's interested in you. I said, no, that's not right. No, no, she's never said anything 
to lead me in that way. I'm sure she knows I'm married, you know. And she's like, well, I haven't been to play practice. Yeah, but the ring, yeah, but maybe she hasn't noticed. I'm just telling you, she is interested in you. I said, no, 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 yeah, 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 no, no, no. I promise you, she just wants to come to our group. She is interested in you. So the day of the play came. We had the play. After the play, we had a cast party. So all the cast is gathered for the party. I, of course, bring Katie, who did not come to any of the rehearsals, but she did come to the play to watch me perform as General Tito in this play. And so afterwards, we have this cast party, and everyone's standing around talking, and different cast members are talking to different different um, cast members, and this girl comes up and talks to me. Katie has her back to me. She's talking to someone else. The girl comes up and talks to me, and in that conversation, I said, I would like to introduce you to, and I grab Katie's arm and bring her around to my wife. The blood drained from this girl's face, and she loudly said, well, I have a fiancé, and she turned around and walked off. I looked at Katie and said, well, you're right. (laughs) She liked me, after all. I thought she just wanted to hear about Jesus, but you're right. She liked me. The wise husband understands that his wife has been gifted in ways that he is not. And in understanding certain things about life. And so here you see that this woman has gracious words, has good words, has godly words, where she is able to speak wisdom into his life and instruct him. And then finally, here's the last thing. The good wife is a godly woman. More than anything else, above everything else, the way this passage ends, the way this chapter ends, the way this book ends is with these words about the good wife. Charm is deceptive and beauty is fleeting, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Honor her for all her hands have done. And let her works bring her praise at the city gate. Here the author says, above everything else, here is a woman who fears the Lord. And the picture here is of the husband saying to his wife, you are beautiful on the inside and the outside. However, over time, if your outer beauty fades, you still have this spark. You still have this inner beauty that makes me madly in love with you. And yes, charm is deceptive and beauty is fleeting. But a woman who fears the Lord is to be pursued and she is to be praised. 